from the WGN Skyline Studio. WGN Radio presents a conversation. I want to make one thing perfectly clear. A dialogue. What are you prepared to do? An astute debate. Everything that's in the law. And a peek behind the curtain of politics. And then what are you prepared to do? I think Chicago is not only the center of the country, I think it's the center of the world. Don't tread on them. Where did this statement come from? This is the Sunday Spin. Your host is the Chicago Tribune's Rick Pearson. Good Sunday afternoon, everyone. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune, and welcome to this edition of the Sunday Spin for May the 10th, 2020. Yes, happy Mother's Day to everybody out there. Welcome to our look at the world of politics and policy as we take you from City Hall to the State House and all the way on to the White House. So be safe, be home, take a break, grab a beverage, toast mom, and we'll get you prepared for the rest of the week. Well, Roger, you know, we've all been doing so much cooking at home these days. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to think, I, I haven't, I don't, I don't cook on Sundays because obviously I'm here. Right. Uh, but I was thinking maybe for tomorrow, you know, some of uh, mom's favorite recipes kind of thing, you know? Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, she made this great uh, German potato salad mm. that it was a cold potato salad. With, okay. With vinegar. All right. But it it would just get creamy, mm-hmm. and it was just wonderful. You know, it would go great with that. My mother's fried chicken, crispy Ooh, yes, fried yes, chicken. Yes, yes. Oh my goodness, so tender and juicy. It uh, right now I'm drooling. Well, I was going to ask you about <laughs> what, what your mom's. So, what made it so juicy? Um, I, I'm not sure. I think it was the combination of things. Uh, um, you could use the whole chicken cut up. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, she would, um, uh, coat it in egg, uh-huh. uh, the whole egg, whip right. it up and coat it in that. And then you've crunched up cornflakes. Yep. 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 Yes. You see, same yep. thing. You put that in the back you shake it around and then you put it on a, uh, Crisco greased pan mm-hmm. and bake it in the oven. Oh, not oh, fry it in the pan. Fried. No. You bake it in the oven. Make sure you flip it over. Right. And it would come out juicy, tender, and just the, the, the right sweetness from the uh, cornflakes. Oh, yeah. Even though there's very little sugar in the cornflakes, but it right. would just add just a touch of sweetness to it. And it would go great with those uh, German potatoes, mashed potatoes. Oh, that's not mashed. They're no, actually uh, they're cut up. As, oh, okay. Uh, it's a, uh, you know, they're sliced potatoes, mm-hmm. you know, after you boil them and then you slice them and then they kind of marinate in this. Oh, nice. Yeah, oh, yeah. Sounds delicious. That and I thought about, uh, we actually had a, a friend of ours uh, dropped off uh, some German uh, I guess he felt we weren't getting enough German food, so he, he dropped. God bless John, I love him dearly. Drops off a pork loin uh-huh. for a roast and spetzel, and uh, oh nice red cabbage, and uh, made that yesterday. Very nice. And so I said, for turnabout fair play, uh, I'm going to have to make him my grandmother's liver dumpling soup. Ooh, I've never heard you of ever that. Had liver dumplings? No. And I We've had, had dumplings, but, you know. And I love liver, which is an acquired taste. Yes, it is. I, when I was young, I couldn't stand it. Right, I couldn't either. But now, grill that up with some, uh, you know, just some flour coating and uh, some onions, cut up onions, 
and it cooks real fast. It's delicious. Well, this is the dumplings themselves are liver. Oh, that is the dumplings. Oh my goodness! Yes, you 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 grind them up uh, with some uh-huh. onion and some seasoning, and then you uh, soft simmer them in a pot of broth. Nice. And then uh, at the end, you kind of throw some uh, barley in it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so All it right, becomes like almost like a liver barley mm-hmm. Kind of mm-hmm. soup. Very nice. And and I yeah I couldn't stand the smell of liver when I was a kid, but liver dumplings yeah. I, I could eat those as a kid. <laughs> And uh, I haven't made it for so long, mm-hmm. but I was just thinking that I think I'm going to. You're going to do that tomorrow? Yeah. Cause, right. Well, look at this weather. You yeah, know? that's true. It's going to be a little on the nippy side for a while. Well, and I so I we're in the 30s already at O'Hare, mm-hmm. and uh, I can only imagine what the wind chill is here at the lakefront because uh, the wind tunnel, the winds were ripping. Yeah, when I was out at the WGN Storm Center patio. Uh, <laughs> Uh, wow, it is, it is, yeah, it is ripping out there. So, I mean, I wish I had planned ahead uh, to have it simmering now for the. Oh, end of the show. in a would it cook like in a crock pot or in a slow um, cooker? I I don't think so. Okay, I think it. it I would be worried that it might fall. The dumplings. Ah, uh, all right. So you need you need not a hard simmer mm-hmm, but a soft mm-hmm. simmer just to keep mm. them together. Uh, with you know bread and egg, sure, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's fantastic. If I make some, I'll bring some in. That'd be fantastic. I, I promise. And I've got to. I, I if keep there's saying any left. If there's any, well, left. yeah, <laughs> don't hog it all. Come on. I I've been saying, telling my wife that I've got a you know I've got a lot of time on my hand. I need to go back and start baking stuff and and making dinners and stuff. And of course, the thoughts are strong, but the will is weak. You know, so okay. I, I I need to keep pushing myself to make that, and when I get that chicken done, I'll bring some in for oh, you. Oh, that's yeah, that and and truly, I haven't had homemade fried chicken in a long time. Yeah, it's it has been a while. And uh, you know, because and look, we don't eat eat it that much as we did as kids too. No, well, because your meals were planned, right? When you were kids, now it's like you know you're running around as an adult, and it's like, oh, what can I grab quickly, or oh. Oh, I forgot to plan dinner. Right. You know, um, it's uh, it, it it gets a little hectic at times, even as we're staying at home. Yeah, it does. Yeah. It does. And, and quite frankly, you know, we all joke about how we lose track of what day it is. Yeah. It's it's easy to lose track of what time it is. Yeah. Is it is it been... Prince Spaghetti Day yet? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I remember those days yeah. as well. Yeah. Yes. And I haven't made a big batch of... Uh, spaghetti in a while either i think you know who's cooking like crazy at our place who's that our son oh that's right you mentioned yes yes he's uh two days ago he was making something it was like uh, it, it was heaven the aroma coming out of the kitchen um and then i i asked myself so what's going on and with my schedule now i eat lunch at like three so i'm not hungry at five or six and so I go with my bagel dog at three, and you and your bagel, dogs, me and my yeah, bagel dog. Yes, yes. <laughs> Actually, we got we got a text. Somebody says try a crushed up Cheez-Its instead of the cornflakes for a different. Oh, really? On the chicken. Ooh, that would be a little different taste. Kind of a yeah, yeah. Very nice. That's an idea. Thanks, thanks for the tip. 
Well, you mentioned that, you know, we're all cooking. Mm-hmm. There's also, you know, cleaning because we had, you know, yesterday was a nice day. We had a couple of days, yeah. you know, doing some cleaning. Sure. And, Moving some stuff around and getting stuff ready to have hauled away. Yep. My back is killing me. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Yeah, you're, you should have asked for help. Do you have any help you could have asked for? Yeah, we asked for help. But yeah. Yeah, you know. Uh, it, 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 yeah, we had, we had a neighbor kid. And oh, so, okay. You know, moving like a... A semi-sofa kind of thing. How many times yesterday did you, like, bend down, kneel down to try to lift something, and as you got down to start to lift, you thought, well, this is the wrong idea? Oh. (laughs) (laughs) How many times? How many times? How many times, he says. (laughs) Yeah. That would have been every with every sigh I made, with uh, every breath I took. Yeah, there you go. Oh man! But yes, yeah, so uh, yeah, I'm a little sore and stiff, but it's nice to be sitting here in the yeah. uh, Skyline Studio, and uh, uh, we've got a great show coming up tonight. I, I decided uh, it was, regionalism is so much of what's going on in our politics, and mm-hmm. particularly kind of highlighted by the stay-at-home orders and those kinds of things to do a, a Voices of, from Downstate show. That's great. So I was hoping you were going to wear that great uh, Saluki jacket of yours Oh, today. well, it was it was a little too cold today yeah, it was, for that. Yes, so, yes. Yeah. Well, it wasn't when you got here, now that, now that the front has moved. Through, yeah, that's right? true. Yes, yeah, yes. but I, I, the um, discretion was a better part of valor, and since I'm not leaving until, you know, very Correct. late, Correct. I knew that it, the temperature was going to be cold enough for the, the winter jacket the parka which i i decided to bring so well i i reminisce about those yeah. days down at southern on the show when you didn't today. have to worry about wearing a parka absolutely yes. <laughs> we're going to take a quick break you're listening to the sunday spin on wgn welcome back to your sunday spin i'm rick pearson of the chicago tribune here in the skyline studio Roger's here to keep us up to date on all the news. Producer Casera's here to field your phone calls. We're at 312-981-7200. You can also text us at that number, 312-981-7200. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Sunday Spin. And we're on Twitter at at symbol Sunday Spin. And remember, you can find all of our shows on WGNRadio.com. And you can also get our podcast at iTunes by searching for my name, Rick Pearson. Time to uh, take a look at our weekly spin through national politics, and we begin with what the next coronavirus relief package may look like. Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is talking about potentially a plan to send monthly checks of $2,000 to taxpayers. The White House wants a payroll tax cut, even though payrolls have been decimated by unemployment. Pelosi also wants to aid the states and local governments. The White House wants the legal liability lifted for businesses in case people contract COVID-19. Let's start with Nancy Pelosi speaking on C-SPAN. So what we want to do is what we'll do in our bill and the CARES 2 package, which is uh, honor our heroes 
our, our health care providers, our first responders, our teachers, our transit workers, garbage collectors, all of those people who are making our lives function. Uh, many of them risk their lives so that other to save lives. And now, because of what's happening, they may lose their jobs. So it, we want to help state and local government uh, to be able to retain these workers. Uh, they are our heroes. So honor our heroes. Secondly, testing, testing, testing to open the door uh, to our economy. And third, money in the pockets uh, of the American people, whether it's unemployment insurance, direct payments, PPP, our loan program, and uh, other initiatives. Now on Meet the Press this morning, Robert Smith, the CEO of Vista Equity Partners, says any new relief package should be more focused on banks helping underserved communities and businesses. Here's Robert Smith. I think it needs to be reimagined. We have to take this opportunity to reinvest in our business infrastructure in these small the medium businesses, in our banking infrastructure, and in what I call these capillary banking systems, so that we can actually emerge out of this even stronger. You know, we have to invest, I'm, I'm in the world of software, as you know, uh, we have to invest in right. technology and software so that the banking systems are, uh, these capillary banking systems are more efficient. They have more access to capital. They have more transparency. They actually then can engage with these with these businesses that are in the communities that are frankly underbanked and in many cases not banked at all. Ninety four percent of of African American businesses, for instance, are you know sole proprietorships. Seventy percent are underbanked, or there are no banks. We have banking deserts in these communities, and so we would be remiss if we didn't take a significant portion of capital to reinvest in the infrastructure of delivering capital back into those businesses and, frankly, reinvest in those businesses and give them technology and capabilities so there's more uh, transparency, visibility, and, and giving their businesses an opportunity to, to grow. That's Robert Smith, the CEO of Vista Equity Partners. On Fox News Sunday, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin said the White House isn't in a rush to move another relief package forward just yet. He wants to see and says the White House wants to see how the money is being doled out that's currently in the pipeline. Here's Treasury Secretary Mnuchin. What the president and I are now saying is we spent a lot of money. A lot of this money is not even into the economy yet. Let's take the next few weeks. I'm having discussions with both the Republicans and the Democrats to understand these issues. The president and I are having conversations with outside people, with business. We just want to make sure that before we jump back in and spend another few trillion of taxpayers' money, that we do it carefully. We had an emergency process. It worked quickly. We're there to help the American people. We're going to be considerate. And if we need to help the American people in every aspect of this, as I've said before, we're willing to spend whatever it takes. But whatever it takes needs to be done carefully. That's Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin. Also on Meet the Press today, the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota was a guest. Michael Osterholm says 70% of Americans are likely to get the coronavirus. We have to understand that we're riding this tiger. We're not directing it. This virus is going to do what it's going to do. 
what we can do is only nibble at the edges. And I think it's not a a good message to send to the public that we can control this virus in a meaningful way. And what I mean by that, even though, as as Jeffrey just said, some countries have been able to suppress this somewhat, Korea has now got a major outbreak problem occurring. Germany has had an increase in cases. What we have to tell people honestly, what they want to hear, they don't want to sugarcoat it and they don't want to coat it in fear, but Somewhere between now and tomorrow, next year, we're going to see 60 to 70 percent of Americans ultimately infected with this virus. What we have to do is figure out how not just to die with the virus, but also how to live with it. That's Michael Osterholm from the University of Minnesota. Uh, The chief science officer at Coriel Life Sciences in Philadelphia was also a guest on Meet the Press. Jeffrey Shaman says that you look at models, you can't really be sure of anything. But he says it's likely that in those states that are doing more widespread opening up for business, that they will see an increase in coronavirus cases. Here's Jeffrey Shaman. So if a number of states now it's in the 30s are going to reopen, we don't know what the impact of those loosening restrictions really is going to be. Governors can open and say businesses are open, but it doesn't mean that all restaurants and businesses will open. And it also doesn't mean that the public will actually frequent those businesses. As you quoted, 68 percent of the public is really concerned about this virus and considers that a greater priority than the economy. So many people actually won't go out and use them to the degree they did pre-pandemic. As a result of all these uncertainties, it's very difficult to know what's going to happen, how that's actually going to affect the transmission dynamics of the virus, whether it's going to accelerate and rebound and at what time scales. That said, in a lot of the states in which they are loosening restrictions, they are barely hanging on. And in some of them, they already have growth of the virus taking place. One would imagine that any loosening of restrictions there is only going to accelerate the growth of the virus. Political campaigns continue despite the coronavirus, and in fact, the coronavirus is a major subject in the presidential campaign. We've got a couple of uh, the ads that are being uh, played digitally that we're going to sprinkle throughout the program, but uh, a new one comes from United the, Con- Unite- United the Country PAC, and they're a supporter of Vice President Joe Biden, and they came out with this ad about the high level of unemployment. When I was a young kid in third grade, I remember my dad coming up the stairs of my grandpa's house where we were living, sitting at the end of my bed and saying, Joey, I'm going to have to leave for a while. Go down to Wilmington, Delaware with Uncle Frank. The good job's down there, honey. In a little while, I'll be able to send for you and Mom and Jimmy and Val, and everything's going to be fine. For the rest of our life, my dad never failed to remind us that a job is about a lot more than a paycheck. It's about your dignity. It's about respect. It's about your place in the community. It's about being able to look your child in the eye and say, honey, it's going to be okay. And no, it's true. You never quit on America. And you deserve a president who will never quit on you. The country is responsible for the content of this advertising. We'll uh, play later in the show a new uh, Trump campaign ad countering trying to tie Biden to protecting China. That's up ahead. You're listening to the Sunday Spin on WGN. Now back to the Tribune's Rick Pearson. It's the Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. 
Good Sunday evening. I'm Rick Pierce with the Chicago Tribune. Welcome back to the Sunday Spin. So I said, I'm trying to give you a little taste of some of the advertising that's going on in the digital landscape in the presidential campaign. You just heard an ad from a uh, Super uh, a political action committee that's backing Joe Biden. Uh, President Trump's campaign is countering with an ad uh, trying to tie Biden to protecting China at a time when Americans have strong questions about China and its role in the coronavirus. I'm ready to go. This is a crisis. This is no time for Donald Trump's record of hysterical xenophobia. Biden's son inked a billion-dollar deal with a subsidiary of the Bank of China. Why, 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 why are we getting nervous, man? China is going to eat our lunch. Come on, man. They're not bad folks, folks. Since the outbreak, the Communist Party has been mobilizing overseas organizations to buy local supplies and send them to China. The growth of China is overwhelmingly in our interest. A beautiful history we wrote together. Banning all travel will not stop it. The president is right. That travel restriction on China, as every public health official we've talked to said, bought the country time. Hysterical xenophobia. Xenophobia. Indicated that uh, I complimented him on dealing with China. I'm not going nuts. I'm Donald Trump, and I approve this message. So that is the uh, latest uh, campaign ad airing digitally. Uh, from the Trump campaign as the presidential race continues to move forward. Well, we're going to do, uh, I mentioned earlier with Roger, uh, a show, basically a theme of voices from downstate. And, you know, in this time where we pretty much had divisions over regionalism, those kinds of things, uh, and I think it's been accelerated by the stay-at-home order and the uh, coronavirus restrictions, I wanted to uh, have a variety of voices on from downstate and get an idea of their perspective of how the coronavirus is affecting their regions as well as their industries. And uh, to borrow from Orion Samuelson, I guess, my first guest this evening is Richard Gubert. He is the 15th president of the Illinois Farm Bureau, and he is a uh, uh, a corn, soybean, and wheat farmer uh, from, I, I guess, near Redbud, which would be a southeast area, south of the uh, metro east area. Uh, President Gilbert, thank you so much for joining me. Rich is fine, but it's my pleasure, Rick, to be a part of your show here this evening in Chicagoland. Well, and, and you know, I, I spent a good good deal of time downstate, and, and I, uh, I have a, a very much an appreciation for uh, downstate and understand the, the various cultural differences, those kinds of things. But, you know, when we look here in the, in the big city and uh, we start seeing that maybe uh, the grocery store doesn't have everything we need, or is running short of things, uh, especially things like uh, meat and and produce. Um, I think there's some major concerns going on about you know where are we as far as as the Illinois farmer and the supply chain. Well, it is it um, <laughs> it is kind of a tough and uh, situation at this point in time. Uh, if if you look back over the years, we've not only agriculture but businesses have have um, transitioned to a 24-hour on-demand uh, delivery system. 
just uh, in, to the, wherever, the, the, whatever we need. Yeah, the just in time kind of uh, concept. Absolutely. Whether you need parts for your tractor or you need uh, things delivered into whatever uh, grocery store or whatever, uh, you place your order and within 12 or 24 hours, uh, you'll have it um, into your warehouse and ready to stock the shelves. But what we've really found is how fragile our delivery system really is uh, when it comes to particularly uh, the COVID-19 or a pandemic that we're into right now, uh, particularly on the livestock or the, the agriculture side, um, uh, we raise a lot of uh, commodities on the farm from corn, soybeans, uh, vegetables, uh, specialty crops, uh, livestock, particularly corn, um, uh, cattle and, and hogs, poultry, and uh, and and we milk a lot of cows here in the state of Illinois. And it has to get from the farm gate to the processor, uh, to the warehouses, and then to the grocery shelves. So whenever there is a hiccup, you might say, in any link in that chain, uh, there is going to be disruptions and a real challenge going forward. And we've seen that in in just about every sector of agriculture uh, here in the last um, 60 to 90 days. Well, I mean, obviously we know the stories about the, the uh, some of the processing plants and the uh, effect that uh, the spread of the uh, virus has had among workers at processing plants, uh, leading some for to shut down. Um, and obviously that's kind of close contact work uh, in those uh, processing plants. Uh, but then we have the the president uh, saying that uh, all those plants are going to be up and running, and they're going to be up and running soon. Uh, I mean, is there confidence that that's going to happen, or that that people are going to want to, you know, go back to work in in this situation? Well, there's a, there's a number of factors that play into that. One, the facilities have to be. Uh, if they're shut down, are continually cleaned and disinfected, and those employees um, need to have their temperature ta- uh, taken as they come in, be tested for Corona-19, uh, have the the appropriate um, uh, uh, gear when they're working in the plant, and then uh, be tested again as they leave and take all the precautions that have been laid out by the CDC um and and going forward take more frequent breaks to to wash their hands and and do what they need to do uh to meet those guidelines um and you know a number of those workers need a paycheck and so there uh there is some challenges there whether they have family members that uh, have contacted the the virus or uh those that want to come into work uh worry about contacting it from some other worker in the plant or even when they're not in the plant, when they're in their own homes or our uh, facilities uh, in, you know, in their off hours. So there's, there's a lot of challenges going forward. And we hope that, you know, with this new order that the president has put out um, that, you know, we want our workers to be safe. We want to have all the uh, corrective gear that they need. Um, so that they can continue to do their jobs. And hopefully sooner than later, we can get back up to full capacity because that impact 
there uh, with the processing facilities does have an impact of farmers out on the farm um, because we're we're in a uh, uh, we have livestock that's ready to go uh, needs to be marketed when they're of the appropriate size um, cows have to be milked twice a day at least uh, and that's a perishable product has to go to town when when they're ready and you take a pork facility um, on the farm they need to move hogs out completely disinfect and clean their facilities uh, because they got baby pigs coming in probably four days after the building is emptied um, because the other farmer that was raising the baby pigs needs to make room because his sows are coming in to have babies and you know it's 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 the process that goes on um, and it's we're all on a timeline and you can, you got a time to the day I'm glad you brought that up. I want to talk to you more about this uh, subject because of uh, uh, what's going on in the pork industry. We're speaking with Richard Gobert. He is the president of the Illinois Farm Bureau. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. Five forty-six on this Sunday Mother's Day Sunday evening. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline Studio, and joining me on the phone is the president of the Illinois Farm Bureau, Richard Gubert. We've been talking a bit about supply chain issues, and and Richard, I have to tell you, uh, you know, I we see these stories about you know processing supply chain, whatever. But I guess maybe it hit home to me when I saw that the. Uh, five uh, Republican members of, of Congress here from Illinois who primarily uh, represent uh, agricultural-based districts, uh, sending a letter uh, asking that uh, the, the governor uh, get special federal assistance for the safe disposal of euthanized hog carcasses. I mean, the fact that they can't they can't get them to market, and that that some of these farmers are being forced to euthanize uh, their livestock is uh, just unbelievable. You know, it's been I I can't remember the last time we in agriculture had taken those types of measures, but you know, we in 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 agriculture particularly farm bureau are very appreciative of uh, the you know the uh, working with interim director jerry costello who has uh, just been on the job what six eight weeks at the most uh we've been in conversation with him almost daily trying to figure out a way forward that is uh economical uh, the safe and proper way to to deal with these types of disposals, um, and and uh, there's a number of opportunities to do that. Either and 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 you know the congressmen and women that have sent letters uh, to the governor, uh, that's what it takes to to have FEMA involved uh, in this operation for for dollars and to help assist uh, getting that disposal taken care of in an appropriate manner. We've also been in conversation with Director John Kim of IEPA to make sure that we meet all the corrective standards. And, you know, we in agriculture are environmental stewards uh, day in and day out, and we really want to do it appropriately 
if we have to um, uh, come to those types of measures. So uh, we're looking at a number of different opportunities and different programs provided to us by USDA. One is the EQIP program um, for some reimbursement or partial reimbursement uh, to livestock producers uh, for for those livestock as they're disposed of. So, you know, we continue to work on on a daily basis to see uh, what we have to do and when and to take care of it and make sure that we do it in an appropriate manner. But one other thing that we've done here in Illinois, and I'm very proud of our county farm bureaus, proud of the American Farm Bureau and USDA, who has uh, stepped up and 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 put dollars, uh, bought hogs, bought cattle, um, bought milk, and put it into food banks around the state or in their local communities, uh, because there is a, a, a dire need for those types of facilities um, and, and, and goods um, if we can't get it to the marketplace in an appropriate place or manner, uh, then do that and still be able to feed and take care of uh, of consumers across the country. You know, it's always been our goal um, that we want to feed and nourish this country, and each link in this food chain must work efficiently and safely uh, that we can accomplish that. Well, Richard, you brought up, a, a, actually, I was going to ask you about this because I saw uh, on Twitter a tweet from the president yesterday uh, that uh, basically he said, starting early next week at my order, the USA will be purchasing from our farmers, ranchers, and specialty crop growers $3 billion worth of dairy, meat, and produce for food lines and kitchens, farmers to family food box, great news for all. Um, how, how is this going to work? Well, they come directly to the to the farm um, and purchase those products, pay for the processing. If and that's the challenge we got is find a processing facility that can deal with it, or go directly to these processing plants and pick up those, um, uh, whether it's pork or beef. Go to dairy processing facilities and buy that milk, um, and and to get it to the food banks. What we've really seen is 60 to 65% of the products that we produce or that is processed goes to the hotel and restaurant industry. And that is packaged totally different uh, uh, sizes and shapes and quantities than what is put on the grocery shelves. So, that's, so that's... some of these processing facilities have to re reshift and, and change their packaging uh, to get it to either to the food bank or to the grocery shelves. That's that, that you bring up the the next question I had was how much we talk about the processors, uh, but and and issues that with the processors, but how much of you know this shutdown of of the restaurant industry? How much does that also affect kind of this backlog in the supply chain? Well, that that has a, a, a tremendous impact, particularly in the dairy industry. Where you see a lot of cheese that is packaged in, you know, five, ten, twenty-pound uh, packages, and goes to the restaurant industries. Uh, a lot of beef is sold either on a quarter or larger size uh, packaging uh, to get it to the restaurants, and how they deal with it. More so, it's just so different than going to the grocery shelves and where you sell individual steaks or a roast or however that may be. And there's a lot of restaurants in that that buy, uh, let's say, a 20-pound 
um, loin roast or whatever that may be, or loin, and then they cut it up the way they see fit for what they, the items they have on their menu or what they're putting out curbside. But we're very thankful that the restaurants are stepping up and doing curb service and still providing uh, meals for folks to pick up at the curb or to have delivered right to their home. We've obviously been talking about uh, livestock, dairy, but, uh, I mean, are there other issues here for uh, for farmers of, uh, you know, of crops as far as... What oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You, you look at whether it's corn or soybeans, every sector or every commodity is 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 in the tank you might say way below the cost of production um but corn soybeans in particular um 40 percent of the corn that is grown here in the state of illinois uh goes through ethanol plants or through livestock 50 percent goes through livestock uh so when those get backed up or there's shifts and changes there uh that really changes it. Nobody's driving, so we don't need gasoline or we don't need ethanol to go into the blender pumps and and so that makes it a real challenge if you're a grain farmer at the same time. So how long can you store the grain? We can store the grain uh six months up to a year without any trouble. Uh we can do store those commodities much easier than we can beef, pork, poultry or milk. So at least there's if, if if the storage is available. Absolutely. Is that a problem though? I mean, the availability of storage. Not at this point in time. It could be a problem come September, October when we start the harvest. A lot of farmers are holding their corn and soybeans. Uh, we're getting ready for wheat harvest here in Southern Illinois in the next thirty to forty-five days. Uh, and if your bins are full, you're going to have to sell at those depressing prices. Uh, just so you got room to put uh, the new crop coming in uh, in those grain facilities or grain bins. Richard, overall, I mean, uh, is the response to what farmers are seeing from government, is it satisfactory? From what we've been told, whether it's on the USDA level, uh, which is where, um, you know, the support mainly comes from. Right. As a farmer, I'd rather get it in the marketplace. But we, what we think is coming and what we've been told um, sounds encouraging. Will it make us whole? Absolutely not. Uh, but I think there's opportunities down the road. You know, it, it takes a while to get through the system uh, in Washington, D.C. You know, Congress, we're very thankful that Congress... Uh, it approved the dollars uh, for the secretary in the CCC area and other dollars that uh, could be distributed, whether it's in specialty growers, livestock, grain facilities, uh, but then it has to go through the Office of Mon- uh, Management and Budget and then be approved, and then, you know, then it is doled out. Um, our livestock farmers um, are in dire straits right now. Uh, they call me almost on a daily basis wanting to know when things are going to happen, that they'll be getting some checks because some of them don't know if they're going to make it from this week to next week. And uh, not only is that a financial stress on the producer, but the mental stress is is mounting out here in the countryside as well. And it's not only here in, in Illinois, but it's across the country 
um, those farmers that are impacted and, and having a pretty tough time. I mean, farming's never easy. Um, and, and you know, if it's, it, it's, and it's always something. It's, you know, the weather, whatever. But when this comes out of nowhere, uh, it, it has to be very stressful mentally. Absolutely. You know, we look back, agriculture has been uh, under stress uh, for the last six or seven years. You add in, uh, the tariff issues and challenges with trade agreements, whether it's, you know, around the world. Uh, you know, at the latter part of last year, we saw um, a bilateral agreement with Japan, which was great uh, for our dairy and, and corn producers and, and, and cheese. Then we got a, a deal with uh, an agreement with USMCA with Mexico and Canada and the United States, which was great. And then right at the end of the year or the first part of the year, uh, we reached a phase one agreement uh, with China. And we, in agriculture, we're seeing a little light at the end of the tunnel. And then just as we thought we were going to get back up on our feet, uh, Corona-19 rears its ugly head and uh, sends everything southbound again, not only in agriculture, but across the country. And you look at the unemployment, you look at the stores and communities that are shut down, the challenges in the hospitals. Um, our members really worry about rural communities and, and their local mom-and-pop businesses. When I was just going to ask you about that because, I mean, the farmers are part of the background of those those rural economies. Absolutely. I mean, we handle a lot of dollars in agriculture, don't get to keep much, Um but we do spend it around, uh, whether it's at the local restaurants, your machinery dealers, um, you, you look at the auto parts stores, uh, the car dealers, you name it. We're, we have to keep our machinery and equipment updated and upgraded. Um, it does break down, so you have to fix it. And we have to keep our farms and, and, and farmsteads uh looking nice and looking good was just what we do uh we take pride in in everything that we do out here uh in rural america that's richard gobert he's the president of the illinois farm bureau richard thank you so much for joining me and uh, giving uh, the folks up here a perspective of uh, what's going on out on the farm my pleasure rick and anytime don't hesitate to call visit visit with your listeners out in chicago land area We'll be back with more right after this. Now back to the Tribune's Rick Pearson. It's the Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Good Sunday evening. Welcome back to the second hour of your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Playing some of these uh, presidential campaign ads and uh, uh, interspersed in, in the show today. And uh, there's a group called the Lincoln Project, and it's made up of former Republican strategists for uh, GOP presidential candidates, as well as some moderates, including the husband of White House advisor Kellyanne Conway. Well, they uh, got the president's attention and also his anger last week by running an ad on Fox News. Uh, the Lincoln Project ad was called Morning in America. There's morning in America. Today, more than 60,000 Americans have died from a deadly virus Donald Trump ignored. 
With the economy in shambles, more than 26 million Americans are out of work. The worst economy in decades. Trump bailed out Wall Street, but not Main Street. This afternoon, millions of Americans will apply for unemployment. And with their savings run out, many are giving up hope. Millions worry that a loved one won't survive COVID-19. There's mourning in America. And under the leadership of Donald Trump, our country is weaker and sicker and poorer. And now, Americans are asking, if we have another four years like this, will there even be an America? Paid for by the Lincoln Project, which is responsible for the content of this advertising. So, again, a sample of some of the back and forth going on in the digital uh, airspace over the presidential campaign. Well, bringing things back here local as we uh, continue our uh, voices from downstate, and we go from south of the metro east area in southern Illinois near St. Louis, and we move north up to uh, up to Dixon, Illinois, where the deputy Illinois House leader from Dixon is Tom Demmer. Representative, thank you so much for joining me tonight. I'm glad to be talking with you, Rick. Um, I, I've, I've, we already knew there was an issue of uh, regionalism very, very heavy in our politics in Illinois. And this has been kind of a, 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 a gradual thing. I mean, it was always easy for somebody from outside the metropolitan area to bash Chicago as a as a campaign device, that kind of thing. Uh, but I, I I really think it's gotten much more intense in this polarization. And if anything, uh, maybe the coronavirus and the restrictions as a result of it uh, from the governor's office may have intensified that kind of polarization. Yeah, I think that uh, I think that there's always been kind of an element of uh, Chicago or the suburbs and the rest of the state of Illinois. That's been an element that you know uh, political observers have looked at for election results, political predictions, um, things like that for for decades, really. Uh, you know, it's and there's been times where it's maybe been more pronounced or less pronounced. Um, right now, though, you know, adding on to that sort of traditional um, breakdown of political uh, alliances, we have very different impacts of what COVID-19 has brought to different parts of the state. And uh, also, I think, you know, it, from a, a resident's perspective, very different day-to-day lifestyles and different kinds of risks and different things that, you know, might come into to the picture of how COVID is uh, transmitted and, and what the outcome is if you contract it. And so that's it's just brought uh, very different perspectives from someone who lives in rural Illinois uh, compared to somebody who lives in the city of Chicago. Well, when I think of a uh, typical Main Street, uh, I would have to say I would think of uh, Main Street Dick, in Dixon, Illinois. And what 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 is life on Main Street these days? It's very quiet. Um, yeah, Main Street in Dixon is was a perfect example of a community that saw a traditional bustling downtown uh, start to be abandoned. And uh, there was a huge effort to repopulate it, to bring back uh, restaurants and stores, to bring back uh, cultural centers and, and the types of places that generate some foot traffic 
and bring a sense of vitality to a to a downtown that has been hollowed out by all those you know kind of macroeconomic trends. And Dixon did a great job with that. It was, it was thriving and bustling downtown. Although if you have driven through it in the last month, it's uh, eerily quiet, and uh, the vast majority of businesses on Main Street are closed right now or operating under you know very significant restrictions. I, I understand that there there's you know obviously some talk about the fact of in the governor's uh, latest kind of phasing for Illinois the issue of the uh, regions being based on um, hospital uh, issues and, and and a lot of complaints that it ignores more local kind of issues that, that smaller places are being lumped in with bigger ones that aren't going to show the the kind of numbers and i i guess i want to i want to get your thoughts on that but we're going to take a quick break you're listening to the sunday spin on wgn welcome back to your sunday spin i'm rick pearson of the chicago tribune here in the wgn skyline studio on wacker drive overlooking kind of a dreary day but it's mother's day so again happy mother's day to everybody and joining me on the phone is the deputy illinois house republican leader tom demmer from dixon and representative uh just to kind of restate that question about you know a lot of a lot of questions seem to arise about the way that the uh, Governor Pritzker kind of divvied up the state into these regions uh, for the 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 move to try to reopen Illinois, and I, I guess I'm I'm curious, what's your take on that? Well, the the regions are incredibly large. I mean, if you think of Dixon, so Dixon's a uh, hundred miles due west of Chicago. We're in a region with. Uh, 27 other counties. Uh, the region goes from the Wisconsin border on the north, includes Rockford, the Quad Cities, Peoria, Bloomington, and everything in between. Uh, it covers hundreds and hundreds of miles. Uh, and so, you know, we're in a position here of asking in, in communities like Dixon, Lee, Ogle, DeKalb counties uh, in the district that I serve, uh, we could be hitting all the benchmarks. We could be controlling things just the way that we're supposed to. And an outbreak a couple hundred miles away uh, could lead our entire 27-county region to be stuck in an earlier phase. And so I, I think when you start to take it through that lens, the map that's drawn really isn't based off of hospital utilization data. It's really not based on emergency response territories. Um, it's some couple of large arbitrary groupings of huge swaths of the state. Well, and, and I mean, there is an issue that, that people will point out that there, obviously the virus is not bound by geographical lines. And, you know, uh, granted, you know, where Dixon is in relation uh, to Rockford and, and the the uh, the boat trip up the Rock River that it would take to get there. But, I mean, there is some interconnectivity between some of these places where there could be a transportation of the virus. Isn't that correct? Well, there's a connectivity between any region. So I think that's when you have to start to look a little deeper and ask, you know, what's the logic behind grouping some of these regions together? Um, if you were to say it's it's just a Rockford area cluster, for example, and that's because that's where the uh, higher level medical facilities are located. You know, that's where we send some of the more severe patients. Something like that makes sense. But what's happened in the in the governor's plan is 
several of those regions have been combined together. So those emergency response regions have just been grouped together um, apart from the distinction that they that they typically shared. And, you know, it's true that the, the virus doesn't know a, a geographic boundary, uh, but that's why I think it's important to engage local people in communities so they can uh, set goals for what testing looks like, identify where, if there's a uh, positive rate in the community, what that rate looks like and how it moves over time, quickly intervene if there's a suspected outbreak or a, a high-risk situation. Uh, it really involves that local knowledge to help you understand where are our risk points instead of painting with a broad brush and saying, we're going to, um, you know, freeze commerce across this entire area uh, because of, uh, you know, some geographic quirk of the map. Well, and, you know, I keep hearing uh, there's no one-size-fits-all in this kind of thing. In fact, in fact uh, Mayor Lightfoot uh, was using that phrase in her uh, announcement of the city's uh, proposal, uh, but it didn't really... Uh, it was not any looser than what the, what the state regulations apply to. Uh, I mean, until, frankly, until legislators get back in session, this is kind of the way we're going to be under, isn't it? Well, we really need the legislature to get back in session. I mean, you know, we, we, uh, we had delegated uh, through the Illinois Emergency Management Act the ability for the governor to declare an emergency and to take emergency action. And I think everybody understands that there are circumstances where we're not going to, when an emergency breaks out, we're not going to wait for the legislature uh, to come down and, and debate a plan and put something in place. So we give the governor authority to act in emergency situations. But when we look at this, you know, the governor's proposed Restore Illinois plan, we're talking about a plan that lasts for at least months, probably years. Uh, that's that's different. That's wholly distinct from setting short-term emergency policy. When we're talking about policy that has impact on how business, how local government, how public places, public institutions, how really your everyday life functions over a longer period of time, that's no longer uh, an issue for the governor to set by emergency proclamation. That's precisely the kind of policy that a democratically elected legislature in the House and the Senate from all over Illinois, that's what we're charged to do. And frankly, that's the, the type of uh, complex policy that we're set up to take input from a variety of stakeholders on, pass through the details, and come out with a final product. Can the legislature meet safely? legislature can meet safely, yes. I mean, you see this happening in uh, in Washington. Um, Senator Durbin last week said he felt safe at the U.S. Capitol. They'd taken appropriate um, safeguards and, and steps to make sure that legislators were safe there. There are a variety of steps we can take. In fact, the governor's own Department of Public Health has put forward a template for steps to take to ensure that the legislature meets in a safe uh, and sanitary way. And I, th I think we can do that. You know, this is not going to be us coming back for a normal May session by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but we cannot ignore the fact that when we're talking about long-term policy that governs the state of Illinois, that is a role that is fundamental to the power of the legislature and the reason that the legislature exists. We're speaking with the Deputy Illinois House Republican Leader Tom Demmer of Dixon. Uh, Representative, I mean, is is there a... Is there a plan you'd like to see? 
or is it a man? Yeah, you know, I, I well, yeah, I've been I've been working with a couple of uh, my counties. I, I have four counties in my district. Um, two of them, Lee County and Ogle County. We've brought together uh, county health department leaders, mayors, city managers, uh, first responders, education professionals, hospital um, representatives, all kinds of folks who are involved in different ways in understanding and managing the risks that our communities face from COVID. We've put together a, a plan that uh, tries to give uh, additional flexibility toward for individual counties or local groups of counties to be able to move through phases on uh, using data that makes sense for those areas. So, you know, we're not trying to propose a situation in which a county can just flip a switch and say no rules anymore or somebody can bury their head in the sand and pretend like no problems exist. Instead, we're trying to say, we want to take a data-driven data driven and scientific-based approach, but we want that approach to be based on the areas that we're, that we're living and working in. Understanding that the day-to-day life, the kinds of exposures that happen, the kinds of interactions that happen for somebody who lives in rural Illinois are entirely different from someone who lives in an urban part of Illinois. And the solutions and the strategies we take to mitigate risk should reflect that and should be different based on different parts of the state. So the data benchmarks would be more localized to to try to try to adjust to those kinds of differentiations between rural and urban. They would, and and you know they'd also try to engage more with um, some of the kinds of uh, businesses that are currently closed. You know the plan that we're talking about would engage with those business owners and operators from the beginning and ask them to put together plans that can uh, improve social distancing, that can reduce uh, contact between uh, employees and customers, that can limit the number of people who are in uh, a given uh, square footage of area. You know, they're really engaged to take those steps to understand what the physical footprint of their area looks like and how they can best take, take steps based on their kind of business. And I really think that if, you know, if we're talking about uh, the COVID being a reality we have to deal with over a longer horizon period of time, uh, we have to have those kind of engagements and that kind of, uh, of cooperation in developing strategies to deal with it, because it's not going to be the kind of thing where, uh, you know, we're going to, to strike May 29th and say the whole thing's over. We have no more risk anymore. This has to be a longer, longer-term partnership. And I think the only way to ensure that there's buy-in and engagement and success from that is to engage folks at the local level. Is there buy-in in your area to the governor's plan? Well, I think people understand the, the caution, right? The, the governor is, has been very aggressive in, in uh, ensuring that we're taking steps to limit exposure. And I think we share that common goal. We might have difference of opinion about the best method to achieve that, the best way that uh, the best policies that could apply to our communities to achieve that. But we certainly share the goal of protecting people's health in the best way possible, um, trying to balance, strike the right balance between the kinds of essential work that has to happen in our communities um, and the, the, you know, sometimes inevitable um, exposure that happens when you have these essential people working out there as, as first responders on the front lines. We have to strike the right balance between that, though, and that's where I think we have a little bit of a difference of opinion. Uh, his, is, is, like, Dixon city government, are these small towns under budgetary pressures because of 
you know the, the kind of the stepped up the uh, things they have to do as first responders with the coronavirus I think just as the state is going to experience, there's really kind of two punches in this. The first would be um, some of the unexpected expenses from COVID, some of the PPE purchases, um, uh, you know, some of the the test equipment, supplies, tents, you know, things like that 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 local governments have had to come up with. But I think the bigger concern for a lot of local governments is what this is going to mean for their revenue picture. Uh, the closure and the reduction of a significant amount of business is something that's going to lead to revenue declines both for the state and for local governments. And I think that's going to be, um, as compared to the direct COVID expenses, I think the revenue side is going to be an order of magnitude larger. Um, which which only makes trying to put together a state budget even more difficult. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the, the dual difficulty here is that uh, we expect a downturn in revenue. We're all trying, you know, people are, are um, accepting that, that that's the reality we face. But there's so much uncertainty around that. You know, I, I can't tell you what the economy is going to look like in June, much less much less September or next February. Um, it's an incredibly difficult uh, job to try to make a prediction about what the impact on state revenue will be, given the fact that we really don't know under what kind of restrictions or what kind of limitations uh, we will be in the upcoming fiscal year because of this pandemic. That's Deputy Illinois House Republican Leader Tom Demmer from Dixon. Uh, Representative, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Always glad to talk to you, Rick. Thank you. Now, the Sunday Spin continues on 720 WGN. Here's Rick Pearson. 312-981-7200 is our phone number. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio as we kind of have a special edition uh, today of uh, Voices from Downstate. Um, Kevin McCarthy, the House Republican leader from California, has named a GOP task force to look into China. Uh, again, another reflection of growing tensions with China over the coronavirus. Uh, here is uh, House Republican leader McCarthy making that announcement. Well, we cannot wait any longer. The stakes are too high to sit idly by, which is why today I'm announcing the Republican-led China task force. And I invite the Democrats to join with us. There was one moment in time they said yes. A few months ago they said no. I would say there was no more important time now to join with us together, to work as one nation as we face these challenges. This group will be led by House Foreign Affairs Ranking Member Michael McCall, and it will include Liz Cheney and Anthony Gonzalez, Darren LaHood and Mike Gallagher, Guy Rauschenthaler and Denver Riggleman, Elise Stefanik and John Curtis, Andy Barr, John Joyce, Adam Kinzinger, Jim Banks, Michael Waltz, and Chris Stewart. It'll be a microcosm of our entire conference, taking more than 10 committees of jurisdiction and others. They will will be looking at a wide range of China-related issues, including influence operations targeting the U.S., including our universities, think tanks, and media outlets. That's House Republican Leader Kevin McCarthy, and one of those names on the list of this task force is my next guest. Uh, On the phone from Peoria is Congressman Darren LaHood. Congressman, thank you so much for joining me. 
Hey, Rick, great to be with you and your listeners, and a happy Mother's Day to all the moms and grandmas in your audience tonight. And uh, I want to wish your mom a special uh, happy Mother's Day, uh, because I don't know if you know the story about how she grew up in Villa Park, where that's where I grew up, and she actually, her father's uh, tile place was right across from my grandfather's uh, electrical contracting shop on St. Charles Road. (laughs) <laughs> I didn't know that, Rick, but she is, uh, when I told her today, because I saw her for Mother's Day, uh, she, that's the first thing she mentioned is, you know, Rick is from Villa Park, and I had forgotten about that, but um, I have very fond memories of, of spending time at my grandma and grandpa's uh, and on Kenilworth Ave, and we would walk up to his tile shop up there on St. Charles Road, and yep. it's great memories. Yes, well, so I, I wanted to make sure that I, I wished uh, your mom a special Mother's Day. <laughs> um, Thank you. So, uh, Congressman, I, I guess uh, one of the things I'm wondering about is, you know, from your perspective, uh, are we doing enough, is government doing enough for the rural areas of downstate in, in how they're being, you know, every every place unique, but how they're uniquely being affected by the pandemic? Well, Rick, I would just generally say no. Uh, and my district, I think, is a good reflection of that. I'm proud to represent 19 counties, almost 20% of the state of Illinois. And my district borders Iowa and Missouri. And I have cities like Peoria and Bloomington Normal and Springfield, which, of course, are medium-sized cities. Then I have a lot of rural areas that go over to the Iowa um, and, and Missouri border. I think like Quincy is a good example, Rick, a, a town of 40,000. They have had very few cases, very few infection rates. Uh, and you walk across the bridge there in Missouri to, to Hannibal, Missouri, and, and they are under a totally different system. Restaurants are open now. Bars are open. Again, exercise and social distancing. Uh, uh, barbershops are now operating, again, with restrictions. But the one-size-fits-all in Illinois that affects Quincy, and by the way, Quincy has come up with a blueprint that they gave to Pre- uh, Governor Pritzker five weeks ago where the doctors in town, the hospitals in town, the public health officials uh, have shown that they can do uh, an opening of of those industries and businesses there that are affected. And so it is uh, extremely frustrating and disappointing. And I don't think it's based on the science and the data and the medical evidence that Governor Pritzker has continually asked downstate communities to abide by. And that's the frustrating part. And, And secondly, I would just say this, Rick, there is a growing restlessness and anxiety and anger in my district and other places, and, and mutiny is too strong of a word, but it is beginning to get that way, particularly when you see elected officials like state's attorneys, elected sheriffs that are not going to abide by the governor's shelter-in-place order. I mean, that that's part of the reason why I wanted to do this show is because, and as I, I mentioned to uh, another guest, is obviously regionalism has always been a part of Illinois. It's, it's part of its strength. It's also part of its weakness. And it just seems like... Uh, if anything, that kind of political divide of regionalism has only gotten stronger in part because of the the, the coronavirus and uh, these restrictions. And I, I have to admit, I was somewhat surprised under the governor's kind of phasing approach here because even he in, in one of his press conferences and he was hedging back and forth about, you know, should different regions of the state open 
uh, earlier than others, those kinds of things, and even mentioned such things as, you know, in some rural areas that you've got, you know, you're living on a on 10 acres and your nearest neighbor is 10 acres away and it's a different kind of, you know, uh, social distancing that exists than, than what you have, you know, on the corner of Wacker in Michigan. Well, well, no doubt about that, Rick. And and the other thing is, you know, uh, Dr. Fauci, uh, who I think has been respected by uh, on both sides of the aisle and by the entire country, you know, his plan is a 14-day phase-in plan, which makes complete sense for downstate Illinois. Remember, Rick, 75% of the state of Illinois is farmland. It's rural America. And we are much more like Missouri and Iowa and Indiana than we are Chicago. And to have Fauci come out with a 14-day phased-in plan and then Pritzker have a 28-day plan for downstate Illinois, it doesn't make any sense. And, and that's the frustrating part, I think, for, for us in downstate Illinois. And, and I've said this, there is no doubt the coronavirus kills people and, and has had an effect health-wise. But I'm going to tell you this, so does poverty. And people not getting a paycheck, people not being able to go back to their livelihood after they've been compliant for seven weeks. Remember, downstate folks have been obedient, responsible, compliant with everything in place. And now to tell them if you're a restaurant, you're not going to open up until the end of June when there is no relatively few cases and no infection rates in downstate Illinois and continue to go down. That, that, that is, again, um, a very frustrating part. And it's different than all these other states that are going in a phased, a, a, a tiered approach. And all that, that we've asked the governor is to have a measured, balanced approach as it relates to downstate Illinois, and we haven't seen that. Uh, you know, when you mention about mutiny being too strong a word, but but I mean, the, the, there, the tension is palpable here. And, you know, we started seeing it with some of the lawsuits and those kinds of things. Um, but at the, the time of those... Uh, you know, obviously, people are all getting tired of of, of these rules, and and I, I guess I wonder when you talk about the the livelihood. You know, Pritzker's line is the governor's line is well, uh, I'm you have to save lives to have a livelihood. Yeah, I, I mean that, but it, when you're again, and I when I was in I was just in Quincy on Friday with all the local elected officials, and by the way. I don't. This is not a Republican or Democrat issue. Could I? I could give you just as many Democrat mayors in my district that are, um, you know, upset with the governor doing what he's doing. We've asked the governor to come downstate. You know, the frustrating part is for the last seven weeks he hasn't really left Chicago, Rick. I don't know that he's been downstate once. Compare that to Governor Cuomo. Every one of his press conferences are in Albany, the state capital, three hours from New York City. Uh, Gavin Newsom, many of his have been in the state capital in Sacramento. I'd love to have the governor come to Quincy, to Peoria, to Bloomington, Norville, to Springfield, to the state capitol, to, to interact with people and, and let people know his plan and why he's doing what he's doing. To not even have that dialogue or that interaction, I think, is what's frustrating to business folks and people trying to understand why they're being treated the same way as Chicago, which clearly has had a different uh, you know, uh, situation with COVID. They've been affected much differently. They are a hotspot, and they ought to be treated accordingly. But the justification uh, it just doesn't add up, in my view, in downstate. And again, I don't say that politically. I just say it based on the facts and evidence. We're speaking to Republican Congressman Darren LaHood of Peoria. I'm Rick Pearson. This is your Sunday Spin.
Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pierce from the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio. And joining me on the phone is Republican Congressman Darren LaHood of Peoria. We're uh, doing voices from downstate on this uh, Sunday as kind of a theme as we talk about kind of uh, getting the pulse of where people are. You know, and, and, and I obviously, uh, Congressman, you know, I, I know downstate, I have several great friends that live downstate and and it's kind of interesting in talking to them because i don't know if it's just because of the urban population setting or 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 just that you know the covid virus is you know front and center it's in our faces all the time uh on the news and everything where i I don't get that that is the mindset downstate well, I think that's accurate. Um, as again, over this last seven weeks, while people were, you know, told to be compliant and follow all the rules of social distancing. And by the way, Rick, I mean, many parts of downstate Illinois already exercise a lot of social distancing. And so, you know, we, we've been following everything. But again, as you look at other parts of the country that are beginning to open up and as people gradually come back, I, I think the frustrating part is, well, they don't, I mean, they don't see the everyday results or more and more cases or people dying in downstate. Listen, this definitely scares people as they watch the national news and they see places like Chicago. But but again, I I say this all the time, people are resilient, they're resourceful, and they're responsible. And and they're going to continue to do that. But to continue to have the kind of the thumb of government on people and not allow them to prosper and thrive and gradually, uh, again, um, transition back into some sense of normality, that's the part that's extremely frustrating. And, and um, I think there's a little bit of people feel like Pritzker is kind of moving the goalpost, right? I don't think anybody in downstate expected that, uh, you know, we would be not really opening up many of our things until the end of June. And every surrounding state to us um, is doing that. And so there are plenty of examples around the country in the Midwest where this is happening, but not Illinois. And again, I don't think they felt they've gotten an accurate explanation and the medical evidence and science doesn't back it up uh, in, in downstate Illinois. Rick, let me just mention one other thing. I will tell you on this. Testing is a big part of this. And I will give, give Governor Pritzker credit in his administration. They have allowed and put in forth a lot of testing in downstate Illinois. We have facilities throughout downstate, and that's a good thing. Uh, and, and people continue to get tested, but we just haven't had the infection rates. We haven't had the positive tests. But the testing is there. We're going to continue to have that, and we should. That's another part of transitioning to opening up, uh, and that's that's not something that um, uh, should be taken lightly and something that we have in place that, again, can help us get back to normality. Obviously, uh, there's a lot of talk going on about what is the next uh relief package look like coming out of washington if there is a relief package which i'm assuming there will be and i i guess when you look at kind of the struggle that it took to put together the last package um everybody's looking both sides are looking for leveraging isn't that isn't that a fair thing to say absolutely yes i mean uh, so you've got you know, uh, uh, Mitch McConnell raising the the liability issue, uh, legal liability issue, which obviously is it, it goes goes to the heart of uh, trial lawyers and, and who are traditional Democratic supporters. Uh, you've got Nancy Pelosi now, uh, according to the Hill, talking about uh, perhaps direct checks of two thousand dollars a month to every taxpayer. Um, 
sure, the federal government is the only one that can print money. Um, and yes, people are hurting. Um, the White House wants to talk about uh, a, a payroll uh, tax cut, but when you see unemployment as big as it is, uh, how does that help people who no longer are on a payroll? Uh, a lot of competing interests here. What what do you see coming as the next relief package? Well, I think that's yet to be determined. Um, obviously, we've passed four bills already over the last seven weeks, uh, spent close to $3 trillion, Rick, that we've uh, pumped into the economy. That doesn't count what the Fed has done. They've put in about another $5 billion in terms of liquidity. So we're, we're up at close to $8 trillion that's been put in. And again, that's I think the federal government's responsibility is to, is to do that. Um, I think the PPP program, the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, has been the, the best program we've done. We've now put $700 billion into that. That helps our small businesses, whether you're a bar and restaurant, maybe you're a landscaper, a contractor, a small manufacturer, or a barbershop. That gets you through this kind of eight-week period of time uh, to keep your employees on uh, your payroll instead of going on unemployment insurance. And I think it's worked fairly well with them being able to go to their local banker, their local credit union, uh, their their community lender, uh, and get that money. And so um, and I would just say this, relatively, uh, if you look relatively at the four uh, bills we passed, they have been bipartisan. And I think the federal government's done a decent job with, you know, getting money out quickly and in an efficient way to kind of stabilize things as best we can now. Now, moving forward, uh, you hit on a couple of those topics, Rick. I, for, for me, I think there's a growing number of us that want to take a pause. Let's spend this $3 trillion, which, of course, we haven't done yet, and see where we're at. Remember, this $3 trillion has gone on a credit card. Um, we don't have a rainy day fund at the federal government. So we've printed all this money or are printing that. And so we continue to go into debt. We're creating a debt bomb. But um, Mnuchin, Secretary Mnuchin, I think has analy- analy- he's analyzed it well. He said the analogy he's used is it's kind of like a baseball game. It's nine innings. So we may be in inning four or five now. And clearly there's going to be further response. We may have to replenish the PPP program. We, we may have to give some money to cities and municipalities and states. Um, again, uh, depending on, on how much that is, I think that will be a fight. Um, I think there's going to be a strong resistance to giving more direct money to individuals up to $2,000. Um, uh, the liability issue is out there. So I sense it's going to be more partisan. Uh, we just found out today we'll probably go back to D.C. this Thursday and vote on a number of different things. Those haven't come to light yet. Um, but, you know, there's going to have to be bipartisanship between, obviously, a Republican Senate, a Democrat House, and the administration. But those are a few things. And, and clearly we have further things that we need to do uh, to get uh, the country through this crisis. Well, I want to ask you about uh, aids, aid to cities and, and states. And obviously uh, the you were one of the five members of the, the Republican delegation from Illinois that uh, issued a response to uh, Illinois State Senate President Don Harmon's uh, letter outlining a, a, a $41 billion wish list uh, for aid from the federal government, including uh, $10 billion to uh, stabilize the state's massively underfunded uh, pension system. Um the state and, and Governor Pritzker says, well, that was not my request. And but the, nevertheless, the state would like to have more of like any assistance that would be almost like a block grant type where it wouldn't be encumbered by uh, 
a lot of rules and regulations. Where 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 does the line come down on assisting state federal governments over obviously the fact that revenue losses are significant as a result of shutdown orders? Where where does the line get drawn over how much the feds kind of regulate how that money uh, can be used, how it can be spent? Well, I think it's a good question, Rick, and we're working through that right now to determine that. Clearly, through no fault of their own, you know, cities and municipalities in Illinois and my district have been affected, right? They haven't had that tax revenue, uh, and so they're facing monumental uh, holes in their budget that's going to affect firemen and police officers. And, yes, there is a responsibility and an obligation the federal government has to come in with money. I think what worries uh, a number of my colleagues uh, in the House uh, and in the Senate is we are not going to give money to states that have not managed their states well uh, fiscally. For instance, as we all know, Illinois is about $145 billion in unfunded liability for our pension system. We haven't had a very good track record of being uh, a fiscally solvent state, and and we we can get into all those reasons, but there is going to be resistance to any money going to bail out states that, that haven't watched their nickels and dimes and been um, responsible when it comes to fiscal policy. So, so figuring out what are those guidelines, what are those thresholds? What I've said is, and we said this in our letter, is I think giving the money directly to cities and states is a much better approach to take instead of to the state of uh, Illinois and then having it filtered down. As I talk to my mayors, Republicans and Democrats throughout my district, they're in favor of the money going directly to cities and municipalities. Now, the state obviously is going to have needs also, and we have to do that. Um, in, in our conversations as a delegation, both Republicans and Democrats, I, I don't think there's uh, anybody that thinks we ought to be bailing out the, the pension system in the state of Illinois. But is there ways that we can incentivize Illinois to get on the path to fiscal solvency. We all want that, right? We all want to fix our pension system and get us on the path so we're not dead last in every category. We're also looking at ways that we can put provisions in this aid that that allows Illinois maybe the ability constitutionally to fix our pension system. Uh, That should be a goal of everybody. So um, I don't anticipate we'll vote on something like this until June, Rick, but this is an opportunity for us to help fix states like Illinois and get us back on the path to fiscal solvency, and I'll be looking to do that. So when you say about constitutionally to allow Illinois to help on the pension system, are you talking about the ability to file bankruptcy? Well, I'm not in favor of bankruptcy. Um, And the last thing I would want is Illinois to file for for bankruptcy. That wouldn't be good for for anything. However, I know Senator McConnell mentioned that. I I think we can use that as leverage, right? Let's use that as leverage and figure out, um, you know, constitutionally what I mean is obviously – when I served in the state legislature as a state senator, back I supported pension reform that would help get us on the path to fiscal solvency. Of course, it went up to the state Supreme Court and was ruled unconstitutional. We think we have the ability, through putting language in a federal bill, that allows the state, legislative-wise, to kind of walk through that door and make the decision. We wouldn't make it for them. We'd give them the ability to do that. We're working through the language on that, Rick, but, but we think now is the time to do that, uh, again, similar to how in a bipartisan way the legislature do that, did that, again, we're, we're not going to uh, – we need Illinois to solve their own fiscal problems. And if we can figure out a way to do that in this bill, I, I think uh, there's many of us think that's a good idea. But your bottom line, though, is you're saying you don't see another uh, relief bill moving until at least June. I think there's a chance the House Democrats will push through a bill sure. this week right. that is very bi- very partisan. But it, uh, but again, that'll be a marker they put out. I don't see the Senate 
the Republicans or the White House agree on something until probably early June. I think there's, again, people are resistant until we spend this $3 trillion to, to spend in more money. Uh, very quickly, I wanted to ask you about what, uh, the clip I played at the beginning of uh, being named to the uh, by uh, Republican leader McCarthy to the China Republican China Task Force. Can you just sum up what what is it that this task force is actually going to be doing? Well, obviously, there's a lot of issues related to China as yes. COVID has come up, um, and and um, so the supply chain is one of the big ones. Um, we should never be in the situation we were this time where almost all of our pharmaceutical, our medicines were, were in, produced in China or partly produced in China. How do we bring that back stateside? There are, we're up to 320 pieces of legislation in the House and Senate that deal with China. Second thing is the lack of transparency, the deceitfulness that went on with the World Health Organization and China specifically. Um, we also have bills that, are, that go to uh, asking for compensation from China um, for being responsible for this. So there's a whole slew of things. How do we hold China accountable? The other backdrop to all this is national security, right? Um, which, which continue, as Leader McCarthy said, um, the level of espionage and, and the infiltration that has happened across our country, that will be looked into. So our goal is to come up with a, uh, we'll, we'll have a report that we'll issue by October 1st on a lot of these issues, on specific things we need to be doing to hold China accountable. Congressman, of course, you temper uh, that. Congressman I'm yeah, sorry, go I'm, I'm going to have to hold you right there. So we'll, we'll be talking more about this, I promise you. Congressman Darren LaHood from Peoria, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Great to be with you, Rick. Take care. This is the Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Once again, here's Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. The Justice Department is uh, moving forward with attempts in court to try to repeal Obamacare. U.S. Senate Democratic Leader Chuck Schumer assailed the president for trying to get rid of the Affordable Care Act during a pandemic. Here's Chuck Schumer. Tonight, amazingly enough, the president said that he and the Republican Party are sticking with repealing the ACA. Here we have millions of people who, the Affordable Care Act, we have millions of people losing their health care. We have so many people who have pre-existing conditions who need help. And they say get rid of all that in the midst of a crisis. How tone deaf can they be? How can they do this? I am just utterly amazed. They stick to this right-wing ideology, which helps a few very well-to-do people, and say to the rest of America, uh, let's fiddle, which is what they're doing. That's Senate Democratic Leader Chuck Schumer of New York. We're continuing to uh, hopscotch across the state of Illinois on this uh, special edition of uh, Voices from Downstate. And joining me now on the phone is Democratic State Senator Andy Menar from Bunker Hill, which is in southern Macoupin County, south of Springfield. Senator Menar, thank you so much for joining me this evening. You bet. Thanks for having me, Rick. So we've heard some voices, uh, Republican voices, uh, talking about uh, unhappiness with uh, Governor Pritzker's reopen Illinois plan um, and of the belief that it does not provide enough uh, recognition of uh, local issues and that regions are kind of the regions set up for uh, understood for the hospitalization regions, but nevertheless, that they lump too many 
smaller rural places in with larger cities where it doesn't recognize perhaps a difference in the spread of the coronavirus that you would find in a, a, a bigger, more urban setting. That was just your thoughts on that. Well, I think, you know, first of all, I think the governor and his team have done an extraordinary job. Uh, the governor, of course, didn't have uh, today or yesterday his daily press briefings after, I don't, I think it was 60-some, wasn't it, Rick? Yes, it was 60-some it was. in a row. Yes. Um, his team and he personally have responded, in my opinion, in an extraordinary way under some very, very difficult circumstances. And I think publishing that plan was a big step uh, for the whole state and for the administration um, to recognize that the diverse regions of the state uh, should be able to go on their own path if uh, science and if data and if health experts say that it's warranted. So that was a big step for the administration. I think it was a big step for the state where here we are less than a week later having um, a robust debate about geography in Illinois. Imagine that, Rick. Um, <laughs> so well, so I, I would imagine it's going to continue. But, but you know, I, I, know, I know the governor to be an incredibly reasonable individual. Um, on occasion throughout this crisis, uh, there have been individual things in my district that I pick up the phone and call either him or his, uh, somebody on his team, and, and they get right to it, and they recognize that diversity in the state. Yeah, I mean, I obviously, you know, you're you're in Macoupin County, and you know what you see in Macoupin County, you're probably in the same uh, lumped in with Springfield, which might have a different, you know, number of of coronavirus cases versus what you would find in uh, the rest of Macoupin County. Yeah. Uh, yeah, true. But I, I also live about two miles from the Madison County border, which of course is. Sure, uh, both urban and, and suburban, right? So, so I, I mean, we could we could parse this thing. I mean, we could spend every hour of every day for the next several weeks parsing um, parsing any plan that the governor would have produced if he had said it was a county level plan. You know, there would have been uh, communities, for example, on the other end of the district that I represent, Macon County, that would say, "Well, we don't want to be lumped in with the city of Decatur, even though we're in the same county." So. Uh, you know, my point, again, is I think the governor is a reasonable person. I think he has let uh, – I know that he has let science and he has let data guide his decisions. I, for one, think it's nice to have a governor that responds uh, to those things rather than to the political winds in the state. And, you know, sooner or later we'll be in session. The General Assembly will convene in Springfield, and I'm sure this will be a big part of the debate that, that undoubtedly we're going to have in addition to – uh, the mountain of a challenge that we have for the state budget for the coming fiscal year. We're speaking with Democratic State Senator Andy Menar from Bunker Hill in southern Macoupin County. I'm Rick Pearson. This is your Sunday Spin. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio Joining me on the phone, Andy Menar, Democratic State Senator from Bunker Hill in Macoupin County, uh, part of our Voices from Downstate conversation that we're having today. Uh, so, Senator, when you were talking about the governor uh, understanding, you know, the, the regionalism of the state, 
um, and, and also talking about lawmakers at some point coming into session. So then, right now, should we view this reopen Illinois uh, plan from the governor as, right now, it's the plan, uh, but maybe take a longer view look that this is more like a blueprint than necessarily the plan? Well, I'm I'm not in a position I'm not in a position to answer that question, but you know, keep in mind this is this is less than a week old, and everyone is frustrated. That's clear. Um, no one likes this situation. Um, no one on the political spectrum, whether you're liberal, conservative, likes this situation. Um, but what the governor released is is less than a week old at this point, and. Uh, I think Representative Demmer um, earlier in the show um, made very good points about the work that's happening on the local level. That's happening not in all parts of the state, but it's happening in many parts of the state. I view that work as supportive of what the Illinois Department of Public Health has been doing every day since the pandemic um, began several months ago. So I would hope that that local work, along with the state work, eventually could become one product. How we do that, though, Rick, I, I just don't know. But, you know, I, I throw a cautious, uh, cautious blanket on these conversations because I'm, you know, as a downstater, as, a, as an individual who lives in a town of 1,700 people, where I'm sitting right now, um, you know, across the, across the state, uh, just to the east of where I live, Jasper County has a death rate today of six Uh, 0.7 individuals per 10,000 population, 6.67. Chicago's is is 4.94. So we tend to think about uh, infection and, unfortunately, those who pass away from uh, contracting this disease in terms of hard numbers. And, you know, there are counties in downstate Illinois that don't have as many people as the number of cases in Chicago, for example, but we should think about this in terms of of a rate of infection or a rate of death, because that is more representative of the challenge downstate. We should get away from these hard numbers. And if you look at those numbers, I'm urging caution. I don't like to do that, of course, because I, I I would love nothing more than to send my three children back to school so they could finish out their year. Uh, so they could get closure, be with their friends and their teachers. I would love nothing more for our uh, our small businesses in my hometown to be able to reopen. But but it would be really foolish at this time, I think, to go full blown forward um, because we'll we'll get stuck with taking two or three steps backwards, and that that's going to dig the hole deeper. Uh, than the hole that we're already in today, unfortunately. Well, and that's that, that is one issue uh, downstate, and uh, you know, obviously, the issue of, of nursing homes is is one thing, but also mm-hmm. downstate is where you do have state facilities as well, and these congregate settings, larger congregate settings, and you know, the again, the transmissibility of the coronavirus. It's not, it's it's not geographically limited. And people working, uh, going home, uh, in contact in these kind of congregate yeah. settings is, and, and, is a very troubling issue. It is. And, and when you think of state facilities and you think of um, congregate setting uh, facilities, those many times in the communities that they're located are the largest employers. You know, so think of the largest employer in the city. 
if there was a, a coronavirus outbreak at that largest employer, that that's what we should think about when, for example, um, there's an outbreak at a nursing home um, in Taylorville or um, in Carbondale or another community. Those, those typically are some of the largest employers in those communities. It's it's different in terms of that aspect, but it's also a little more alarming. I, I hear too many times, well, you know, in downstate, the uh, the 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 spread of the disease is concentrated only in nursing homes, or that's just nursing home. It, it's contained in a nursing home. I hear that all the time, but but that's typically one of the largest employers in the community. And by the way, those are people too in those nursing homes, and there are workers that go in and out of that building every day, and those workers could obviously very easily spread the disease when they go home. So. You know, obviously, we you're you're in an, a region of the state where we're seeing uh, various county officials, uh, state's attorneys, uh, county sheriffs, basically saying we're going to turn a blind eye to the governor's directive, even though it's the local law enforcement and local agencies that are uh, charged with fulfilling those executive orders. Yeah, not not so much in my my part of the state. Um, for for the most part, I would tell you that the the work that the local public health departments uh, do in the three very rural counties that that I represent, um, and not to notwithstanding what's happening in Springfield and Decatur, which are much larger departments, obviously, uh, but even in the three rural counties, the work that the public health departments do at the local level is nothing short of extraordinary through this. Uh, many times, uh, be- because their budgets have been reduced uh, for for obvious reasons over over recent years, uh, but the work that they do for enforcement um, is nothing short of extraordinary. I don't I don't really see that um, you know thumbing of the nose of, of elected and public officials um, at the law in in my area. Um, not to say it won't happen in the future. It might, depending on how this you know, proceeds and, um, you know, how much patience people have uh, moving forward. But but I would just I would just tell you in, in the 48th Senate district, um, Republicans and Democrats are working well together. Public health departments are leading the way in terms of response. Most people that I see, most people um, wear masks in a grocery store um, or at a gas station um, there, there truly is an effort. Now, of course, there's always, uh, you know, those that go against the grain. But by and large, uh, most people understand that in order to get back to normal, uh, we have to stop the spread of the disease. I, I know it's not your place to tell the governor what he should and shouldn't do. But I, I have always wondered if maybe uh, it wouldn't hurt to do one of his briefings one of his daily briefings downstate, just as a acknowledgement to to the rest of the state. Yeah, it, it certainly wouldn't. It certainly wouldn't wouldn't hurt. But I, you know, I went through this um, in, in a very big way with school funding reform. You know, the the, the political right. geography of the state. Um, and I would tell you, if you opened up the Decatur Herald and Review today, Rick, you would see a quote from uh, the mayor, Julie Moore Wolf. Uh, who I speak to almost on a daily basis, almost on a daily. I didn't speak to her today because it's Mother's Day. Um, 
But there's a quote from the mayor, um, Julie Moore Wolf, who says that she has direct access to Governor Pritzker and that he responds to her. He personally responds to her uh, when she has a situation in the city of Decatur. Uh, we went through an um, uh, awful situation with a, with a nursing home, and the nursing home was one of the first homes at the mayor's request, at my request, uh, that the Department of Public Health uh, did a mass testing exercise on um, in downstate. Uh, so you would see a quote where the mayor says that um, that the governor's been overly responsive to her and that when she needs something, she literally picks up the phone and calls him. Uh, so would it be nice? Of course it would. But, you know, that would also take uh, the governor to pack up his staff and, uh, you know, drive across the state, um, uh, potentially exposing individuals or staff members. Um, but right now, I think what's most important is that we uh, keep responding in a cautious manner as a state government and letting uh, data and letting science help lead our decision-making process. So at what point do you think uh, the legislature returns? You know, I, I really don't know. I, I had a conversation with President Harmon, um, who, um, you know, has, who's been uh, keeping our caucus up to date in the Senate, the Senate Democrats, on all of these potential issues. And it's been helpful, you know, for us to, to share with each other what's happening in each of our districts, respectively. Uh, but I would expect sometime um, before the end of the month, uh, we will have to convene because we have to um, go through the process of passing a budget for the coming fiscal year, which is not going to be um, an easy task. This is going to be most likely the most difficult budget scenario um, that any of us uh, have or ever will uh, deal with during our tenure in the legislature. We have incredible challenges coming at us in the coming weeks in terms of decisions on how uh, we will craft a balanced budget for the upcoming fiscal year. So does that mean you expect that we will have a budget adopted in three weeks? Um, maybe not in three weeks, but I, I would hope that, um, you know, I hope that we will, uh, in short order, um, uh, Congressman LaHood, uh, the guest previous to me, of course, said that he was hoping uh, that if a stimulus package comes from the federal government, it would come perhaps in the month of June. Uh, that's a little bit longer than what we would take typically to pass a budget in the General Assembly. So that's a big moving piece of the puzzle. Uh, but I, I would tell you, Rick, that um, in the Senate, at least, Republicans and Democrats, we meet every day. Uh, the, the folks that are charged with negotiating the moving parts of the budget, uh, we meet every single day. And um, it's, it's a very positive can-do type of conversation right now. Keep in mind, we're operating on a budget right now in the state that was a bipartisan success. Um, this time last year was passed this time last year. The budget that we're operating off of today was a bipartisan balanced budget. Um, of course, we were thrown this incredible uh, curveball uh, with COVID-19, but we're operating off of a bipartisan balanced budget. That, that gives me hope and gives me an expectation that we can do that again. Uh, it'll be very interesting. It'll be, it'll be also, it will. <laughs> also that's an understatement. Uh, Democratic State Senator Andy Menar from Bunker Hill. Senator, as always, thank you so much for joining me. You bet. Thanks for having me, Rick. Now back to the Tribune's Rick Pearson. It's the Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Oh, no. 
Good Sunday evening. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio. And this has been kind of a special thematic show today. Yes, Mother's Day, but uh, that was not the theme. This was about voices from downstate. And in these very politically, regionally polarized times, I thought it was very beneficial that we kind of go past and look beyond the tri-state tollway uh, to kind of measure the impact of what the pandemic is doing politically, industrially, to the ag economy, uh, to people's lives. And now we move down to southern Illinois to the Carbondale-Murfreesboro region. And joining me on the phone is Molly Parker. She's a journalist and investigative reporter for this Southern Illinois. And Molly, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rick. How are you doing? I'm doing good, but I have to admit I am a bit jealous because I imagine 17th Street Barbecue is doing uh, pickup orders that you can uh, take out from there. And uh, I, I could use a, a little bit of some ribs and uh, that new uh, Apple City Barbecue sauce right about now. Well, that's right. I think you can order it online. They may deliver it to your doorstep. Uh, yeah, they <laughs> do. They they do, but it's got a hefty, hefty price tag because they do it fresh. I can't imagine. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I guess it's just what it's worth to you. <laughs> that's well. When we can travel freely again and businesses are open, I'll be I'll be restocking. That's for sure. But uh, amen. Th- thank you so much for joining me and. I, I, as I said in kind of the the predicate to this, is just, you know, we already know about the political polarization that is longstanding in the state that only seems to have gotten, you know, worse over time. And it to me, it seems like the the coronavirus sets up a, a perfect storm for that kind of political divisiveness. In that, you know, people are hunkered into their their homes. Uh, they're being told, ordered not to, you know, you can't do X, Y, and Z, ordered to shut your business, that, you know, if you're from uh, deep down state, this is like the worst thing you can imagine is the orders being delivered on a daily basis from a podium at the Thompson Center in Chicago. Yeah, I think the optics of that are, are tough. Um, not to say that people aren't taking it seriously, but there's definitely a lot of uh, mistrust of Illinois government in general. And, and when the leadership is so far away, I think that adds to it. I, I was going to say, but I mean, don't you feel that it's it's kind of heightened a little bit in this, in this pandemic atmosphere that we're in? Oh, certainly. I, I think a lot of those divisions and are on display, a lot of, a lot of, uh, economic concerns down here of course as there always are and then yeah i think feeling like the the daily message and the orders are coming down from you know 300 miles away just adds to that divide that like you said that's been there that's always been there um but rarely have we seen the stakes so high both health-wise and for our for our long-term economic viability i think all of that just really heightens what was already there below the surface what is life like on the uh, illinois 13 corridor well i mean it's it's slow here of course everybody's like you said hunkered down and 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 at home uh while we may have growing 
political dissatisfaction here. I think that's obvious in the daily headlines of this official speaking out and that official saying, I'm not going to enforce this order. Um, I will say by and large, people are closed down. They are home. Um, You know, we don't have, uh, despite a lot of uh, noise being made about it, you don't see just mass rebellion necessarily in terms of businesses reopening. We've had a few here and there. I think they've had a few in various parts of the state, you know, central Illinois. And uh, certainly we've had a few people take that stand here, open up temporarily. I think we had a place in Heron over uh, Friday that, you know, a little eatery opened for a little bit. The health department said, you need to close down. And and he did close down, um, but spoke out about it in the media and said he wanted to make a point. Um, so, you know, I, life here is probably reflective of what it is like throughout a lot of places. But I, I do think you're, you're starting to see more people question some of what's going on, especially adding to the frustration is the fact that our border states um, are opening up, at least moving through these phases that are not unlike Illinois, but moving through them much sooner. So you're seeing Kentucky start to open up some businesses in Indiana. Um, and as you know, Rick, when you're down here and it's rural, you know, it's not uncommon for people especially when you kind of head south of Carbondale to go to Paducah. Sure, I was just uh, going to say. For their business or for work or, yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, the easy the easy trip over to Paducah. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I mentioned to uh, Congresswoman LaHood earlier, too, is that, and, and I'm, I'm supposing here, but that when you're in this urban setting of Chicago, that the the coronavirus kind of it's 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 constantly kind of in your face you know you're wherever you go it's the the masks it's the number of people it's the news that's nonstop, and that i'm not sure that it's necessarily uh that much of a a driver downstate i mean obviously people know what it is but that it's not like in your face if you know what i mean no i do and i think you're right i think it's probably you know everything's relative to where you sit um certainly if you're here you might you might feel like it's in your face because it is on the news every day it is uh, you know, we have had some pretty big outbreaks. We have some of the counties, you just look at a single county, some of the highest uh, per capita infection rates in the state of Illinois. Um, you know, Randolph County comes to mind as one because they right. got, uh, they've been really hit hard with at Gilster Mary Lee, which is a food manufacturer, uh, sort of like they make a lot of shelf-stable foods. Um, not uncommon to what's going on at the meat, meat packers and processing centers once they started testing there. You know, they found out gosh, you know, half of people have it here. Um, so we've had problems and it's certainly been in the news, but, you know, we haven't had the maybe mass hospitalizations. And uh, while we have had deaths, at, they've been isolated at nursing homes and, and it hasn't been as maybe as shocking or as in your face, like you said, as it probably is in Chicago. So I, I'm sure there are I'm sure there are definitely differences in how people are perceiving what's happening. Um, our hospitals are furloughing people. They're lay, not laying off, but a lot of our hospital systems have put people on furlough now for months. Um, so, you know, I think people are just seeing that happening and, and having maybe some questions about uh, what it is that we should be doing and how we should be responding. Um, and I think the economic uncertainty here is as high as I've ever seen it, because one thing about Southern Illinois is it seems like it's always sort of on the fragile edge of, you know, if we lose sure. one thing, we're always 
uh, we've lost coal mines. You know, back in the day, always worried about SIU shrinking, loose manufacturing. Um, so small businesses are certainly the backbone of what we have left. And these aren't rich people. You know, I mean, sure, there are some people that have money, but for the most part, uh, what's making Southern Illinois stick together is just a bunch of, uh, you know, mom and pop type shops. People have put their whole whole life livelihood on the line. And so you can understand why, uh, I think, for those folks that um, they're starting to have maybe questions, especially like, as I said, you can get to Cape Girardeau in 45 minutes. You can get to Paducah, Kentucky in an hour. You can get to Evansville, Indiana in two hours. Um, and those places are open. Um, so I, I definitely think that's top of mind for people is, you know, certainly the health concerns, but also what's going to be left of us down here um, if we can't start to do some return to, uh, you know, businesses reopening at some point. We're speaking with Molly Parker. She's a journalist and investigative reporter at the Southern Illinoisan based in Carbondale. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. on this Sunday Mother's Day evening. I'm Rick Pearson. This is your Sunday Spin. I'm in the WGN Skyline studio on Michigan Avenue. And joining me on the phone is Molly Parker, a reporter and investigative reporter at the Southern Illinois newspaper down in, uh, obviously, Southern Illinois, the newspaper based in Carbondale. And uh, we're concluding our conversation here about uh, a thematic show about voices from downstate. And, uh, you know, Molly, before we went to break, you were talking about, you know, this this realization of people about, you know, what what's the future going to be like? And, you know, this is this is in, in rural southern Illinois. I mean, that's been an, a constant conversation for decades um as and and you know wondering you know is anybody in the rest of the state listening to us uh as factories leave as the coal mines closed um you know you you look at you've done some outstanding work when you look at public housing issues down in uh down in cairo and uh you know what what what's what's left of cairo you know uh, yeah, right. Not a lot, right? I mean, not a lot, and it's not just Cairo. It's this whole, uh, especially when you look south of Anna, you know, you get way down in southern Illinois. People in Anna say they feel like, uh, you know, if you live south of Anna, they say they really feel forgotten. If you live south of I-64, that's maybe a feeling you have. And the, the further south you go, the stronger the sentiment uh, seems to be about feeling unheard or, uh, you know, just and that that follows that makes sense that the more the the economy and uh, the job centers uh, go away uh, the more desperate people feel and and sort of like no one's listening um do you think uh, in talking to folks do do, do they feel that the the government's been responsive in this uh, you know to to what's going on do they feel that the government's responsive or or is it just a or is it more of a hindrance I think they feel like what I sense is that in the early days of the order, 
when it started, I actually felt like most people were generally on board. We were, you know, everyone is kind of beginning to understand, okay, what does this mean? It was a novel. What do we need to do? It was kind of a novel situation nobody had been in. So, you know, a shared experience. Right. And it was obvious that things were going bad, right? And I think people did understand that. I Obviously, you have, you know, people on the fringes who continue to believe this isn't real or some sort of, you know, conspiracy to cause economic damage you know none of that really makes sense but i just because the, the fringes are loud on facebook i don't think that was the overwhelming sentiment but i have noticed a growing uh, discontent maybe with people feeling like the governor isn't listening to what's going on here um and you know whoever you fault uh, maybe it's the folks that are pushing back the lawmakers um and others you know uh, again we don't i guess there is no perfect clear roadmap here about how to move forward. But as these other states, like I said, that surround us take a really a pretty dramatically different approach. I think that's just getting much, much stronger and is more of a mainstream uh, sentiment, if you will, that the government, you know, the governor and the government maybe aren't fully tapped into how people feel here or what they feel is at risk. Um, and, you know, I think on the flip side, you could also maybe point at the governor's office and say uh, part of being able to get buy-in is the ability to explain that, right, and is to reach people. And I think when people feel like so much of the message is Chicago-centric, um, you know, even if he is right about what we should be doing down here, that sort of communicating that even through the media or uh you know, making your staff available to explain exactly why this policy and why it's different than, you know, other states and, and what the metrics mean. Um, I'm not sure that that is being relayed to the common person in Southern Illinois. And so, again, I think uh, people, when they don't feel like they understand it, the natural inclination is to say they're not listening and, hey, we're going to do our own thing. And so I think that's what you're starting to see is people starting to test the waters of, well, what happens if we just do our own thing? Well, and I have to say, I was kind of curious how, you know, in, in the governor rolling out this plan and, and how these, you know, obviously large regions uh, and, and the governor had talked about, you know, regionalization as part of a reopening plan and, and how, you know, people that live in rural parts of the state, the, the distances are greater. You know, it's not as concentrated as in urban areas. And given some of the kind of, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, kind of pushback, uh, I thought that there might be a, a bigger accommodation to places downstate and, and downstate counties than what ultimately we saw in this plan. And I think you know, just as kind of a pressure safety valve kind of situation. And I'm not sure that uh opening some state parks or allowing uh two people in a boat or going fishing uh, i'm not sure that 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 releases much of a of the pressure valve there no and i think that's why you're again you're just starting to hear a drumbeat of people speak out i mean um and you know hairdressers for one and and i've seen the meme you know people say oh you want to sacrifice lives to get your hair cut but you know, on the other hand, we're talking about people who, again, you live in a rural area, uh, they don't make a lot of money anyway. A lot of these 
hairdressers and barbershop owners or sole proprietors, you know, uh, they haven't been able to access unemployment. I interviewed a lady in Harrisburg. She's a single mom with two kids. She's a barber, which is really cool, I think, and unique for a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, has all all male clientele. And anyway, but she would, you know, she's struggling to pay the rent. She she may now have been able to finally access the unemployment, but she wasn't able to uh, as of like early May when I talked to her because of the whole issue with the the redo on the unemployment system. And I, she's like, I don't have money. You know, I've, I'm not some big corporation begging to reopen. I have no money. And I, you know, from her perspective was, what's going to, you know, and she was very into the stay at home order. She said, I wanted to do my part. I still want to do my part. She said, but they're telling me I can open up, you know, possibly we'll be able to do barbershops on May 29th. Right. And she said, what's going to be the big difference between now and May 29th in our region? Um, And I I think people are asking some legitimate questions um, when we start to allow this slow reopening of some barbershops, some retail um, how is the picture in Southern Illinois going to be dramatically different today with the coronavirus than than it will be in three weeks? Um, we're always going to still have this issue of a rural hospital network that doesn't have a huge surge capacity. But when you look at the governor's, uh, you know, map, like you said, it's huge. It's, it's I don't know how many counties is in our southern region, more than 20. Um, it runs from, you know, the the Indiana border to the Missouri border, it, it doesn't also account for the fact that in this rural region, we're far more apt to seek serious medical care outside the state. So if you're, like I said, kind of south of Anna region in the bottom seven, you might be going to Cape Girardeau, Missouri. You might be going to Paducah, Kentucky. Um, Hardin County, for instance, really rural, really small, has a hospital with one ICU bed. Um, but the hospital director told me, he said, even in normal times, we're not seeing people with serious problems. Yes, we have one ICU bed, we have one ventilator, but we, we've never had the capacity for somebody whose medical situation is escalating. Um, so, you know, and we all kind of know that about our hospital systems. If you've got a broken leg or a sprained ankle, you might go to your, you know, your county hospital or your city hospital. But if you're having a serious crisis, you're going to be in Carbondale or you're going to be in St. Louis or you know, Cape Girardeau or Paducah, depending on where you live, or Evansville, Indiana, if you're over on the uh, kind of eastern border right. of, of southern Illinois. No, and, and you, you actually do raise a good point, which I, I neglected to mention, was that issue of, you know, obviously the, all along the governor said this was all predicated on uh, uh, hospital capacity and capability and that kind of thing, and it, it truly did neglect uh, obviously, some of the more regionalized medical centers, like you know, if 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 you're you're in the metro east area and you're serious, you need to go to St. Louis. You know, you're Evansville, right? And St. that could be for better or for worse in terms of reopening. You know, I mean, not if you're in the metro east area, it might mean you can't reopen as early. Um, the metro east area is tied into this whole huge rural southern Illinois belt. But yeah, you know, if, if St. Louis is having a serious outbreak, that's more. Uh, important to people in that, you know, that would be fed into that hospital district in St. Louis than it is maybe somebody in Mount Carmel who's going to Evansville if they have, you know, a serious crisis. So, I don't know, just some of the questions that I've heard uh, people talking about. I, I've I've also wondered too if if just if it wouldn't maybe for you know the optics of, of Pritzker coming downstate and doing his daily briefing. Um, I mean I know he was very early on 
uh, he was downstate talking, I believe, to local health departments. I, I'm not sure if he was in Harrisburg or somewhere uh, in Williamson County or, or something along those lines. But, I mean, just something, you know, to to not, not have that kind of uh, being dictated to from Chicago kind of look. Well, I, I think the governor's office, I'm mean, not, you know, not on me to tell them how to get their message across. Sure, but understood. I, I've talked to mayors who believe that, that the governor's message may backfire, that if he can't figure out a way to connect, whether it's coming down here. I mean, I understand the issues with travel. I mean, maybe travel that's, and health, absolutely. you know, helpful, maybe not. Of course, we understand we're not supposed to be traveling, so I get why he might be, you know, hesitant to do that. But but in some way, I you know, I, I had an interview with his chief of staff on Friday, and I posed that question. Um, at what point is it, you know, it's easy to say to governor every day when he's asked, you know, the East Peoria mayor says this, the Harriman mayor says this, the energy mayor is not going to follow your order. And he always responds to it in a kind of, well, you know, shame on them. And that's fine. I'm not saying that's inappropriate. But at the same time, at some point, if you're losing the ability to be, you know, to manage the people you're trying to govern, um, in mass numbers, I wonder at what point is that also on the person delivering the message? Uh, because that message is only as powerful it is, as it is for people to buy into it, right? I mean, that's, that's part of it. You can be right, but if no one trusts you, believes you, thinks you're listening to them, what good are you doing? Yeah, and, and sometimes the, the data, the message of the data just sounds cold and and kind of flat and, and just a recitation of numbers very tragic numbers as they are but it doesn't um, doesn't offer uh, empathy sometimes yeah i think it it's been a an, an interesting exercise uh certainly to watch the governor's press conference I, and you know i will say i, I do appreciate as a reporter that they do that i i know they have a lot of areas of the state wanting to get in questions so the ability to get in one question a day, which is pretty what well, I think what any single reporter uh, pretty well has the ability to do. But that isn't necessarily a great place for really deeply understanding what's going on. Um, you know, I, we've got a you know fifty questions ranging from what does this mean to are you going to allow more than two people in a boat? I mean, it's it's not necessarily a place to really kind of get a good grasp on you know why we're doing the things we're doing and. And what does this mean to the, you know, barbershop owner in Harrisburg? And can you explain to her why, you know, she shouldn't be able to be open, but right across the state line, someone doing her exact same job uh, should be open. And, and yeah. No, I was going to say, sometimes those those briefings are, are another example of why it's never pleasant to watch the sausage being made. <laughs> it can... <laughs> There, there's a certain part of this you really don't want to see. We'll, we'll get to the highlights. Uh, well, Molly Parker uh, from the Southern Illinois, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Yeah, thanks for having us, Rick. I really appreciate you uh, folks on Downstate. It means a lot to us. Much appreciated. Folks, thank you so much for listening this evening with my special Downstate Voices edition of the Sunday Spin. This is WGN.